First Thessalonians. I had a whole I ho- had a whole page of uh, illustrations on complaining, and I didn't read a single one of them. I mean, it was just all stick this morning. You know what I mean? There's no. So I'll read a couple. Here we go. Um, I'm hoping you find these funny. How about this one? Actually, this is uh, just a thought here. Uh, he says you'll find it. Uh, you'll find that as a rule, those who complain about the way the ball bounces are usually the ones that dropped it. (laughs) Uh, This feller said, air travel has great advantages, but have you ever had to sit in a bus three hours while it circled around the depot? (laughs) Uh, Need something to complain about? It's not very encouraging to know your bank deposits are protected by an agency of federal government that is $1.6 trillion in debt. This was 20 years ago. Here's one for you. A guide at Blarney Castle in Ireland was explaining to some visitors that his job was not always as pleasant as it seemed. He told them about a group of disgruntled tourists he had taken to the castle earlier in the week. These people were complaining about everything, he said. They didn't like the weather, the food, the hotel accommodation, the prices, everything. Then to top it off, when we arrived at the castle, we found that the area around the Blarney Stone was roped off. Workmen were making some kind of repairs. This is the last straw, exclaimed one lady who seemed to be the chief fault finder in the group. I've come all this way and now I can't even kiss the Blarney Stone. Well, you know, the guide said, according to legend, if you kiss someone who has kissed the stone, it's the same as kissing the stone itself. She says, I suppose you kiss that stone. And he said, well, better than that lady, I've sat upon it. Okay. Okay. Okay, First Thessalonians. See, there was supposed to be some humor this morning, but <laughs> I just left it off with the Blarney Stone. There you go. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, moving right through the book of First Thessalonians. We're moving pretty quick, aren't we? I'm thankful for this Bible. And uh, I'll tell you what, the more I learn it, the more I want to learn it. And if all you had in this world was this book, you'd be okay. You'd be all right. That's right. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, this is where we left off. The Bible says, Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now, Father, I pray that you bless your word and pray that you bless the uh, word of uh, preachers preaching the King James Bible all across this country. And Father, I pray that you Bless the people for coming out. Give them something. Fill their cup, Lord, and give us exactly what we need. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, we said uh, left off on this verse uh, last week. And so Paul's coming by. Uh, he's coming by to straighten some things out that were out of line, that were missing. Uh, some things uh, that were out of line, maybe some false teachings, maybe exhort them, provoke them to be a better soul winner, bolder in the faith, and uh, maybe deeper Bible students, if I had to wager a guess. And uh, the phrase, perfect that which is lacking in your faith, has nothing to do at all, like we said last week, with some second blessing. And there's a multitude of groups that teach a second blessing. We're not going to go into it all again, but it has nothing to do with the unscriptural thing called the second blessing as taught by the Plymouth Brethren, 
the Keswick group, Wesleyan Methodist, the Pentecostal, so forth and so on. So don't let anyone tell you, Christian, that you need a second blessing. I pray for God's blessing, that's fine. But this second blessing, as we covered, is something these groups claim has something to do with salvation, all right? But what you do need, and this is, uh, you need to pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And you pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit so you can be filled, so you might be able to minister to people. And uh, you got to realize that the filling of the Spirit, it wanes. Uh, you're not always hooked up to 440. <laughs> Amen? Okay. Well, anyways. Uh, look at Song of Solomon chapter 6. We uh, kind of threw this in here. I want to give this a, a little bit of material to you here. And Christians in the body of Christ uh, are like the moon in their fervency for Jesus Christ. And I want to give this to you. This is, uh, this is good material. And uh, the church, Christians, the body of Christ is like the moon. And you find that out in Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 10. Song, Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 10. The Bible says, Who is she? You see the she? Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. Now you notice there's four, there's four likenesses there in that passage that the body of Christ is likened to. It's likened unto uh, the morning. It's likened unto the moon, the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. And uh, now the moon doesn't always reflect the light of the sun as it should. Uh, sometimes you got, like we said, you got this little sliver of a piece of the moon there, and sometimes that thing's glowing like uh, you wouldn't believe it. But in the nighttime of the church age, the church is like the moon. Like the moon. There's a great study. We'll just hit a couple things here real quick and give you some information to take with you. But the first thing I see here uh, on a negative side, the moon, you know what it is? It's an earthbound satellite. Earthbound satellite. That church is like, a, like the moon. I probably didn't spell that right. Does that look right? Satellite. Nope, two L's. Fail. Earthbound satellite. And uh, you stop and think about that moon will never be free of this earth. And uh, like the moon, the church is bound to this world until the Lord comes and gets us out of here. You see it? You're bound to this earth. There's no other place you can live. <laughs> and uh, I know the Bible says over there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that we're seated together with Him in heavenly places, but your body's here, and you're stuck to this earth until the Lord sets you free. And your body lives here on planet earth, and some of you live in Tawa City, and some of you live downstate where it gets real crazy, amen, and you have more to complain about. And, uh, but you're stuck on this earth until the Lord comes back. And your body lives on this earth, and all too soon it's drawn back into the earth and buried, isn't it? Just like the moon. Next thing I notice about the moon is it's, uh, it's a dead planet. That moon is a dead planet. A church is like the moon. It's a dead planet. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with who? You see that? Just like the moon. Uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, 20, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the, uh, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. 
That means when a person gets saved, his, his old nature that's connected to his body of flesh is crucified with Christ. Romans 6, 6 says that the body of sin might be destroyed. You see that? That moon. That thing's a dead planet. Just like the body of Christ, just like that Christian. Your old man's dead, isn't it? All right? So uh, you get over to Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. You see baptism. You know what that thing's a picture of? It's a picture of death. You see that? Paul says, uh, reckon, uh, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. And uh, now a more positive side. You know what I see? That moon, it follows the sun. The moon follows the sun. I'm sure you knew that. Psalm chapter 19, verse uh, 4 and 5, uh, you find that uh, the bridegroom is likened to Jesus Christ. That's Psalm 19, 4 to 5. And the bridegroom is uh, likened to the sun. So I guess if you think about it, the nearest, uh, the nearest thing to true worship is what? Is sun worship even though it's pagan idolatry. That's as close as you can get. The chief god is usually the sun god. In Egypt, uh, what's it called in Egypt? It's called Ra. That's Egyptian. Uh, Canaanite, Canaanite uh, uh, worship is what? Baal. That's the sun god. Cain, whatever, yeah. You, you get it. Canaanite, uh, so forth and so on. Uh, but the moon follows the sun. And so just as the moon follows the sun in the sky, you know what the Christian ought to do? You ought to follow a Savior. Where he leads me, I will follow. And so forth and so on. Nothing I see here about that moon is, uh, you know this, you, uh, you, you were in school, the moon has no light of its own. You know the Bible said that, right? The Bible said that before whoever it was discovered that it didn't have any light. <laughs> Your King James Bible is way ahead of science. No light of its own. You find that over in Job. Uh, is that 37 or 27? Job, nope, not even close. 25.5. Job 25.5. One of them super smart guys of the East said... Uh, Job 25.5, Behold even to the moon, and it shineth not. Long before science ever figured that out. How about that? And that's a, that's a scientific statement of fact. I, I find that pretty interesting. Uh, your Bible's way ahead of science. Uh, the moon doesn't shine. I know they make moonshine, but the moon doesn't shine, right? It, uh, you know what it does? It just reflects the light of the sun. That's what it does. But the light the Christian uh, gives to a lost world again is not his own light either, is it? You ever stop and think what uh, Jesus Christ said in John 8, 12? In John 8, 12, he said, Ye are the light. He said, I am the light of the world. Sorry about that. And then he does a backward thing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. And he says, Ye are the light of the world. I wonder how that could be. Well, because that Christian is like the moon and it reflects the light of the S-O-N. You see that? So the light that the Christian gives to a lost world is not his own. You give someone the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's not your light, that's his light. 
And uh, John chapter 8, verse 12, uh, he continues on. He says, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. How about that? So the Christian is to reflect the light of what? His Savior. Because that moon has no light of its own. What else we got here? And this is what, uh, this is what I really wanted to pull out of this thing about study about the moon, but there's quite a bit. I won't go over all. But as the light of the moon waxes and wanes, so does your light as a Christian many times. Sometimes the body of Christ gives off a bright light, doesn't it? So the light of that, uh, the reflection of that, it waxes and wanes. Uh, anybody have any idea what phase the moon is in right now? First quarter? <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> but thanks for that. <laughs> But I'm just saying sometimes the body of Christ gives off a bright shining light. Sometimes you do, don't you? Sometimes you're filled with the Spirit of God, and man, you're just a glowing. Just like Moses going up the mountain, spending time with the Lord, and you glow and you shine for Jesus Christ. Uh, they used to have that program him uh, here, Sparks. We're sparks for Jesus, sparks to light the world, right? We will shine for Jesus. Well, that's a Christian, just like the moon. It waxes and wanes. Sometimes it's light, and sometimes it's bright, and sometimes it's not. <laughs> and you know, I was thinking about that. The testimony of our church should be the same way. It should give off a strong, it should give off a strong, powerful light so that it guides and moves things. Yeah, say, how so? Well, you ever stop and think about that moon? It controls the tide. You know how strong that tide is? Don't get stuck in high tide. <laughs> and the church ought to be that way. Just as the moon controls the tide, the church ought to have enough light and power that it controls things even, not politically, but ought to be able to control things in this community. But that kind of tells you the power of the church these days. It, it, it wanes. It doesn't have much power at all, but it should be strong. And uh, the sad fact is that the testimony of the church today and the testimony of many Christians is real sorry, isn't it? It's lukewarm. It's weak. Some days you don't even realize the moon's out, do you? That's a picture of the Laodicean Christian. And so the world, uh, the world that it has uh, around, it's, it's worldly, it has little influence on the community. I don't know if you ever stop and think about the uh, old evangelists like Billy Sunday, and you have the evangelists like Sam Jones, the Methodist Sam Jones. Uh, they'd go into a town, Billy Sunday and Sam Jones would go into a town, and they'd shut, the, they'd shut all the bars down. They'd shut all the theaters down. Boy, Netflix would have a time, wouldn't they, man? <laughs> Go in and shut down the bars. They'd shut that thing down. And you know what happened as time progressed? And we call it progress. It's digression is really what it is. Then you got the, the great evangelist Billy Graham. And he was a great preacher for the Lord. He'd go into a town. Guess what happened? He wouldn't shut any bars down. I'm not against Billy Graham. I'm not going to kick one of God's preachers. You know what I mean? So we had his problems. You do too, amen. Every soldier's got a chink in their armor somewhere. But Billy Graham would go in there, and he might fill some stadiums in Anaheim or out there so forth all over. But he'd come out of those towns, and they wouldn't shut no bars down. Wouldn't shut no theaters down. How about this? The evangelists we got today, they don't even change the churches they go into. You say, why? It's like the moon. There was a day when the church was real strong, and the church was real bright. And it shined, it shone brightly and had an impact like the tide would change the, uh, the courses in the community and change how people would think. But now we're so Laodicean, we're so carnal, we're so weak, just like that moon, we're waning. Well, 
But the Christian, the church, the body of Christ is like the moon. Song of Solomon 6.10, great study on the moon there. I'd encourage you to do it when you've got more time. And you know what? You ought to pray there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. You ought to pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you're going to need the filling of the Holy Spirit to be able to minister to people the way you ought to. Uh, every time, sometimes I forget, and I sometimes do the old Nehemiah prayer when I'm coming up here, but I always, always drop a knee in my office, say, Lord, I'm about to get up there, and unless you help me, man, this thing's going to be a real mess. I can't do it without. You need the filling of the Holy Spirit to be able to minister to people. Uh, you're going to need a special touch on you to witness to your neighbors. You're going to have to have a special touch on you to have the right marriage, amen, have the right family, and have the right effect on people around you. Now look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. You need to be filled with the Spirit of God. And Paul said, I'm coming by you all there in uh, Thessalonica, and I'm going to perfect that which is lacking in your faith. And it didn't have anything to do with their salvation, but it had something to do with their practical life. And Ephesians 5, 18, of course, Paul, he's, uh, he's uh, preaching to the Ephesians, his other church here, and they had a problem with drinking, and I don't think any of y'all do, and I hope you don't. But it says this, and be not drunk with wine. You wonder why you got to tell a church back then that, but you did still. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with what? The Spirit. There's the command. You're to be Spirit-filled. See, you shouldn't be the preacher that's Spirit-filled, but you should, be pray you should pray when you come in here to be Spirit-filled. Amen? I mean, a Spirit-filled, because there's no telling what a Spirit-filled Christian can do for his Lord and Savior. There's a command to be filled with the Spirit. And, uh, it has to do with uh, your willingness to yield to the Spirit's control. And that's the problem with Christians today is there, a lot of them aren't willing to yield to the Spirit's control. You say, fill me, use me, I want to do something for you. But are you willing to yield yourself to the Spirit's control? And that's what's important. You need to realize uh, uh, when you look at things and you go through life, there'll be times where you need a special filling. Amen? You need a special uh, a filling, whether it's preaching or teaching or ministering or witnessing. And you'll need God to give you a special ability to be able to minister to other people. And Paul said, I'm going to swing by your way. I'm going to perfect that which is lacking in your faith. And you've got to remember this, as we've been preaching through this thing in the book of 1 Thessalonians, the will of God is always in proportion to suffering and persecution. Suffering and persecution. It uh, says, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face, and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. And what Paul's really saying, he's like, look, I'm about ready to bring you all some trouble. <laughs> he was good at that. Because you know, every time he'd come by, he'd preach on how to live right and fly straight. And they, uh, they took it serious. And every time you try to do something for the Lord, that thing is established through persecution. It's established through suffering. And that's something you've got to always remember. Because that's what it's going to be like when you follow Jesus Christ. Look at James chapter 1 real quick. I'll show you this. James chapter 1. Read a couple verses here. The will of God is always proportioned to suffering. And persecution. We've said this the last couple of weeks, and you've got to keep this in the back of your mind. Living the Christian life is not just always about head knowledge. I love studying the Bible, love reading the Bible. I actually like putting together messages when the Lord will give them to me. But that's not all the Christian life. The Christian life is not just clerical. 
Now, yeah, there's duty, there's discipline, amen, there's study and stuff you need to do and it's good for you to do it, but that's not the entire Christian life. The part of the Christian life that is the most difficult is where he establishes you through things out in this world and through suffering and through persecution. And yes, it's going to happen in your life and you might not get your head took off for Jesus, amen, but you're going to suffer, whether it's family or friends or uh, people out in the community here. James chapter 1, verse 2, Brother James says, My brethren, count it all joy... When you fall into diverse temptations. Why? Verse 3. Knowing this at the trying of your faith. Worketh patience. Makes you wonder if some people have ever had their faith tried. Amen. By the lack of patience they got. Verse 4. He says but let patience have her perfect work. What's he saying? Don't quit. That's what he's saying. That she may be perfect and entire. Wanting nothing. So the wanting nothing here is being content. That's a difficult thing in the Christian life, isn't it? Being content. You remember Paul said, whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul reached a place in his Christian life, and this is, this is pivotal for you to get a hold of. He reached a place in his Christian life that no matter what happened, he was happy. That's a mouthful, ain't it? And that thing's hard to do. And in a scriptural sense, if you read what Paul wrote, it's almost like you'll never be able to do that. Because after he'd been ministering for over 20 years, what is Paul? He's going around saying, the things I should do, I don't do, and the things I don't, I, sh- I do, right? And then, he's, then he goes on and says, uh, well, you know, I'm the chiefest of sinners. <laughs> but what you need to realize in the Christian life is the more the, that you're in the will of God, the more there's going to be suffering, the more there's going to be persecution, and the more there's going to be tribulation associated with. And that's what Paul is trying to say in 1 Thessalonians 3.10. Look at verse 11. He says, Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. So, of course, the Lord, He's the guide. He's the director. He's the teacher here. He is supposed to be the one that's leading everything that's taken place. Look at verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do Toward you. All right, so notice, well, first of all, Paul says, uh, the Lord make you to increase. And one of the ways you know that you are increasing is that you have the love of the brethren. What a great topic, amen. <laughs> the love of the brethren. Look at John chapter 13. I'll say it again while you're going there. One of the ways that you know that you're increasing as a Christian is that you have the love of the brethren. And you know, you're not going to be able to love the brethren on your own. I'll say that again. You are not going to be able to love the brethren on your own. You can't do it. You might do it one day out of seven, you know, with a smile and a grin and love you and the Lord hate you in the flesh, but you're not going to be able to do that on your own. And I say that because Christian people today are uh, somewhat difficult. If you're honest, you can live in a fairy tale world and everything's, you know, kumbaya and everyone's lovey-dovey, but you know that ain't the way it goes. Christian people, they are somewhat difficult, and you and I here, we're going to have more problem with other Christians than we'll ever have with unsaved people. And that's truth. And that's just the way it's going to be. So in order for you to love these people, you're going to have to have the love of God inside of you. And the Lord's going to have to put it there. Look at John 13, 34. A new commandment I give unto you that ye... I've always thought that was the strangest verse. You had to put that in there. A new commandment. And that commandment is so difficult, isn't it? That you love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. 
Here, verse 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have this great exacerbating biblical knowledge. Is that what it says? It's good to have Bible knowledge. It's good. Amen. That's not what it says. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye go around and try to lead everyone to the Lord. No, don't say that either. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye go to every service the church has. That's a good thing too, but that's not what it says. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And you know, that can only be done by having Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's Jesus Christ in you, and you know what it is, to be honest? It's like an impossible command, isn't it? Because no matter how hard you try, you ain't going to be able to love the brethren the way you should. Because there's always going to be something that's uh, crossed or misunderstood. And you can't do it on your own. It can't be falsified or made up. And it's something that the Lord has to do in you. You know what it is? It's a mark of spiritual growth. A mark of spiritual growth is that you're able to love the brethren. And uh, notice in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 12 that it says, The Lord make you to increase and abound in love where? One toward another. So your love is to increase and abound first toward who? Christians. Notice it's Christians first. And what's next after that? And then towards all men. There's your priority. The Lord said it for you in the book of John. You're supposed to increase your love one toward another, bound, that's an overflowing, in love one toward another, and then toward all men. Now, some people take this verse and say this means you're supposed to love everybody the same, the saved and lost, but that's not what that means. Now, look, you ought to love the unsaved folk, amen? You ought to love the unsaved folk. The saved are mentioned first in this verse. You're to love the brethren more and before you develop your love for the lost. You do love the lost, but let me say this. You can't fellowship with them. You love the lost, but you do not fellowship with the lost. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. There's a very pivotal order of importance here. Remember we preached a couple weeks ago, God's a God of order. And he gave this thing to the Apostle John, and you're supposed to increase your love for the brethren first. A lot of Christians have that thing cockeyed, and they, they feign this great burden for souls. And I'm not trying to be critical, or I'm not trying to be a prude when I say that, but a lot of people, they refuse to work on their relationship with the people of God, and they feign this, this dark hypocrisy like they love everyone out here going to hell. Well, good, have a burden for souls, amen. Witness to people if you can. Pass out the tracts. Get in a word for the Lord. But if your relationship with your brother stinks, you got problems. you got to work on that thing first. That's why Peter said, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your order of importance is that you grow in grace first. You've got to grow in love towards your brother first. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, you know what Paul says here? He says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Some people say that applies just to marriage. No, it's everything. Now look, it's not wrong to go down the right road with somebody as long as you can. But once the, the people that are on that right road, they start going down the wrong road, you can't go with them anymore. All right? And you love the lost, but you do not fellowship with them. Look at verse 14. It says, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? 
And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Of course, you know, verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate. So you love the lost, but you don't fellowship with them. Amen. That's basic Bible doctrine. So unless it's part of your job and you have no choice, I'll say this, you have no fellowship, you have no business fellowshipping with unsaved individuals. You say, that's cruel. I didn't write the book. I'm just trying to teach it. Line upon line, here a little and there. You love the lost, right? Toward one another first and then toward all men. But you don't fellowship with unsaved individuals. You love them, you care about their soul, you witness to them. But here's the thing, you can't maintain a spiritual conversation with an individual who is lost or who is spiritually discerned. You say, why? Because you can't have a conversation about the love of God. You can't have a fellowship about how much you enjoyed the preaching. You can't have a fellowship with about them about missionaries that you support and how you support the work of God. Why? They're spiritually discerned. They don't get it. So what naturally is going to happen? They're going to have to run the conversation. You see that? And you're going to have to let them run the conversation. That's going to get you in trouble every time. So you have to realize, Christian, and I'm not trying to make your life miserable. I'm just trying to help you out. You have to realize that you can't hang around unsaved individuals and it not rub off on you. I mean, your parents told you that growing up. You don't hang out with this kid. You don't hang out with it. He's, he's trouble. He's going to get you into trouble, and they wouldn't let you go here. Why? They didn't want it rubbing off on you. Amen. And you can't hang out with them. You can't go camping with them. All right? And you can't invite them to your house and play cards with them. You're not to fellowship with them. And the moment you begin to fellowship with the lost, let me say this. You lose the ability to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. Because now they control the conversation, and you start getting on them later about the Lord. going to be, hey, what's the problem here? You didn't mind me cracking open my beer earlier. You see that how it goes? All right, look at verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. But that order of that is your love is to increase toward the brethren first and then toward all men. Look at 13, he says, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. All right, now think about it. When we're out of here, we get raptured out of here, praise the Lord, the trumpet blows and we're gone. And we come with Jesus Christ at the end of this thing, it's all over. You will be unblameable and holy before him in love, won't you? But in the meantime, Paul's trying to teach him some things. And that word, uh, that phrase there, establish your heart, is talking about to be submissive to the will of God. And you think about it, people aren't living pure and holy in 2022, then they're probably not looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, are they? You can rest assured they're not. When Christians are not looking forward to his appearing, they're not joyous about his appearing. At any given time during the day, you should be able to talk about the Lord coming back, and man, that thing ought to just, man, that thing ought to excite you. And if it doesn't excite you, there's something wrong. I'm not saying every, every moment of every day is a shout and a glory to God, hallelujah. I'm just saying, look, if you can't get excited in the middle of the day about the Lord coming back, something wrong with you. And a lot of Christians, you know what they're doing? They're not looking forward to him coming back. And the best thing in the world could happen. Best thing that happened to this hour right now, 15 minutes before we're out of here, is for the Lord to come back and shut me up and that trumpet blow and we're gone. 
I could, I'd shout all the way to glory. I don't know how long that would take. It says, meet the Lord in the air, amen? <laughs> I mean, do we like, I mean, do you like scream all the way up in the middle of the air and stop, oh, catch your breath and you go back up to the third heaven? What a buzz, man. <laughs> That'd be great. And uh, he says to the end, uh, he, I don't know how you think those things. I think those things are wild. He says to the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Unblameable in what? Holiness before God. You know, we're supposed to be holy. That's an old-timey topic, ain't it? You don't hear much about holiness anymore, do you? And I'm not going to sit here and tell you I got the key to holiness, but you know, the Bible says, 1 Peter 1.16, he says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. There's something about holiness there we're missing. And the more you think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and the more you concentrate on His return, and if you're to live every day like he's coming back, like you had an appointment with him at 6 a.m., I suppose you'd have everything fixed up and in place, wouldn't you? But you know what we do as Christians? I'll put myself, because I, I found myself this afternoon trying to make plans in my head for this week already. Not that you can't, right? But I'm thinking, I've got to get some more wood cut. I've got to get some more wood split. I've got to cut some trees down. I've got to go here and I've got to go there. It wasn't like, I'm hoping the Lord comes back. But I'm now hoping the Lord's coming back. And, and Chuck, you can stay and cut the trees, but if he's come back, I'm out here. Amen? Right? <laughs> but if you live every day like he's going to return, then I suppose you wouldn't have much to worry about when he showed up. If you figured the Lord's coming back at 6, you'd probably have everything at least in order. Even if it was in disorder five minutes before he came back, you could have it all in order. Give me about 30 seconds, that thing would be in order. Amen? And uh, look at First John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I'm telling you, Christians are going to help you to look forward to Jesus Christ coming back. That, uh, that, that hymn says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim. And I tell you, when things of this earth get really loud and obnoxious, man, we're looking at the wrong things. And you ought to be looking forward to Jesus Christ coming back and planning on him coming back tonight. Look at 1 John 3, 2. Apostle John says, Beloved, now. You know what that is? Spiritually speaking. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. You saved? We sang it this morning. But as many as received him to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Did you do that? Then you're a son of God spiritually. All right? It says, And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. So that's how you and I know we're going to have a body just like Jesus Christ. Perfect. I mean, I'll be Mr. Universe, and she'll be Miss Universe. And, right. You know, hourglass figure, right? 34-inch biceps. I'm making it up now, amen. But we're going to have a body. I don't know if Jesus Christ had 34-inch biceps, but I know a lot what he did with the glorified body. He went from here to the third heaven in, in moments. When he had a glorified body, he came back. He walked through walls. Wouldn't that be a buzz? <laughs> you know, you never have to replace a door again. You just walk through it. Now, Jesus Christ, the glorified body, you know what he did? He sat down and he, uh, with uh, a body and he ate whatever he wanted. And he didn't have to eliminate any of the waste. Isn't that crazy? All right. But thank God uh, that uh, we're not going to be like ourselves when he comes back, right? I mean, haven't you had enough of you? I've <laughs> had enough of me. I know my wife's had enough of me, right? Uh, thank God we'll lose our own identity, you know. 
You're worried about identity theft. You talk Jesus Christ coming back. If you're a Christian, you're going to lose your identity just like that, and you're going to take his identity. You're talking about thieving, thieving your identity. Amen? We won't be our own individual names anymore. We'll be like Christ, and that's a good thing. Imagine if we were like ourselves. We'd be all puffed up when he came back. Yeah, we would be. Uh, verse uh, 2, we should be like him. Uh, it says, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Look at verse 3. This is what you need to see. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So the hope of that resurrection, the second coming of Jesus Christ, him coming back and getting you out, that hope, you know what it does? It keeps you pure the more you think about it. That's why you need to constantly think about the Lord Jesus Christ coming back and getting your carcass out of here, amen? It will purify you. That's what John said. That's a purifying hope. And the more you think about it, the pure you'll be. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13, one chapter over. He says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Amen? So our hope is in what? The White House? It's in the resurrection and the appearance of Jesus Christ. The rapture. We're out of here. The hymn writer said, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And our hope's in the resurrection and the soon appearing of Jesus Christ. And the great thing is, is you and I, we don't have to sorrow like lost people sorrow. Amen? Because if we're saved and we pass away, we're going to see each other again in glory. Uh, We have something to look forward to, and the more you think about it, the pure you'll be. The more you focus on His return, the more holier you will live. The purer you'll be in your talk. If you really thought Jesus Christ was coming back before the service was over, you wouldn't be letting your thoughts wander, would you? You'd be like, is everything in order? Does my hair look right? You know, Are my shoes tied? Are my, my shoes going to go up with me? Who cares, right? I'll get a new pair of shoes when I get up there. And the more holy you'll live. And this whole thing about holiness is not preached very much anymore. People don't even talk about holiness. So I believe there's a reason for it. And uh, we, we can put some thoughts together on it. And I think people are afraid that they'll offend someone if they talk about holy living. Because some people go so overboard with that stuff. And we don't talk about it. We don't preach about it anymore. You know, holy living is, you know what it is? It's holiness in your heart. Not in your dress. Don't take that wrong. I didn't say to not dress holy. I didn't say that. But holy living is holiness in your heart. You cannot define holiness by your dress. But at the same time, if you have a holy heart, you will always dress to please the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if he owns you, right? We're not our own. He's the president. The resident should be the president. The border should be the boss. Why don't you ask him what you should wear? I dressed so I could be stylish. I need some help on that. Well, if you have a holy heart, you always dress to please the Lord. But let me say this, it may not always meet your little standards either. Is that fair enough? If you got a holy heart, you'll dress to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Having a holy heart means you're constantly striving to do what God would have you to do. Amen. You're always submissive to the will of God no matter what it is. And you don't hear much preaching on that. And I'll prove it. Not trying to be obnoxious, but you haven't heard five sermons on holiness in the last 20 years. And that used to be quite a topic preached on. And I believe the reason is we don't uh, like holiness in part is because of the, what the holiness group has done to it. 
There's a group, a pretty good-sized group. It's kind of waning in the country these days, but they call themselves the Holiness, and they made holiness what you wear. It all out here. That's not holiness. Now, if you have a holy heart, like we said, you'll dress to please the Lord. But holiness is just not you putting on a, out of whatever they call it, a three-quarter length sleeve or a dress that goes to the floor. Or, uh, you know, back in the old sawdust days, it was a Lindsay wool dress. My soul, that sounds uncomfortable just saying that word. You know what I mean? And uh, holiness is not just you got to wear a tie and you got to wear a suit coat. Well, let me tell you what, we cut wood. I ain't wearing no tie and suit coat in the woods. That's dumb. But holiness, uh, you know what it is? It's not a set of standards. I heard one preacher, we went to this preacher's, it was like B, 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 B. Uh, we called it the, the big belly, the bad backs, and the behind Baptist conference, whatever. We, we didn't get invited back. I know you find that hard to believe. But uh, this one preacher got up there, and I won't say his name, but he said, if you're a preacher, you need to go everywhere with a suit and tie. And the boys are looking at me like going, you know, because we got to go cut wood later. At any rate, but it's not a set of standards. I'll say it again, and I'll clarify it, because we live in Laodicea, and you've got to clarify everything. Holiness is not a set of standards, but holiness is also not having any standards. You see that? And because someone gets up there and tries to set you free and make you free by letting you be a Bible believer and have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you get up there and say holiness is not a set of standards, they go, well, there you go. You don't believe that you should have any at all. No, that's not it at all. It's just you can't set a, uh, create a set of standards and say if you follow that, you'll be holy. You know what you'll be? You'll be a stinking Pharisee because now you'll be so caught up with what you're doing and how you look and how everyone should be like you and everyone should dress like you and everyone should think like you. And Boy, if you would, you'd be more like me, you'd be more holy. Yeah, full of holes is what you'd be. But holiness is not a set of standards, and it's not having any standards. Holy living, you know what it is? It's good for you. Holy living is good for you. And the more, more clean your heart is, the more holy you will live. You've got to remember that. The more clean your heart is, the more holy you will live. And if you don't live holy, it's, it's a heart issue. And that takes care of chapter 3 there. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, part 1 uh, here. Uh, the, here at the uh, first 12 verses... In verse 1 here, the doctrine of sanctification is here. And that's another thing next to holiness that's uh, not talked about very often. Look at verse 1. The Bible says, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. You know what Paul's saying? He's like, you started in the right direction. Well done. Now you've got to keep going. You see it? More and more. You would abound more and more. Abound more and more what? Pleasing the Lord. Amen. It's not just enough to get to the place where you can finally please the Lord. You've got to keep going. You start out right. You're doing the right thing. Now you've got to keep going. Amen. You've got to continue what you started. Not for salvation, but to pleasing. Amen. And that's what we want to do. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11. We were created for His pleasure. And there's, a, there's kind of like an unwritten law in the Christian life. And it says this, if you stop growing, eventually you will go backwards. You've got to remember that. If you stop growing as a Christian, you'll eventually go backwards. And with that law is this principle that if you're not growing, you know what happens? If you're not growing as a Christian, uh, you'll get stuck in a rut. And you know where this goes next. That rut turns into rot. If you stop growing as a Christian, you'll go right into the rut of what you normally do, right? 
like that little path around your house all wore out. A little path out to the deer blind, a little path. Why? Just travel it all the time. Nothing new. There's nothing growing. No vegetation underneath your feet. And after a while, everything on that path, it rots. And eventually what happens, it ruins. You go from rut to rot to ruin. That's the unwritten law in the Christian life. You've got to keep growing. You've got to keep going. You and I have never arrived until death or the rapture. You've got to maintain that student's perspective. I'm not the almighty teacher. I'm a student of the Word of God. And the moment I start thinking I'm the teacher is when the Lord shuts the light off on that book. You've got to always approach that book as the student of the Word of God. The student, the student, the student. You know what the, uh, uh, the, the smart people have done? They got that thing so messed around. In the Bible, you know what the scholar is? A scholar is a student. And in your day and age, the Gentiles have made the scholar out to be the top dog. Ain't that wild? But in the Bible, you look up that word scholar, that scholar is a student. There's a scholar and then there's a master. And there Jesus Christ said, be ye not masters, right? That's what he said. The Gentiles are masters. He said, but it shall not be so with you. That's what he said. But in the Christian life, you have to keep going. And you have to keep growing. And if you don't keep growing, you'll eventually lose the ground that you gain. And that's what I, con I concern myself with. I don't want to lose what I've already gained. And if you don't keep going on for Jesus Christ, you'll lose the very ground that you gain. You won't lose your salvation. And here's the thing. You never arrive until the death you die or the rapture. You haven't, you haven't attained, as Paul said. And right now, what should I be doing, preacher? Well, you should be growing in grace. You've got to grow. Take your Bible, go to Titus chapter 2. Probably close on this thing here. Right now, you and I should be growing in grace. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter how many children you've uh, spiritually brought into this world. Uh, you should be growing in grace. And if you can't put your finger in your Christian life on a place you've grown in the last year, then you're already going backwards. That's like your memory. What do they say about the memory? It's use it. Or lose it. Thank God you can't lose your salvation, amen? But if you don't keep growing, you'll lose the very ground that God gave you to begin with. you got to keep growing in grace. And grace is a great teacher. I'll look at this thing real quick about grace in Titus chapter 2. I think we picked that thing up in 11. The Bible says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly where? In Tower City. <laughs> In this present world. You see that? And then he says this, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Ain't that something? Well, you know what that is? That's a man growing in grace. And I know a lot of you guys know this, a lot of this of you, but grace is the teacher. It teaches you at least seven things, six if not seven things. Grace is a teacher. And you see there in that passage in verse 11, the first thing it teaches you to do is as a child of God, the grace of God that brings salvation, you're saved, right? You're saved by grace through faith, amen? For me, it was April 24th, 1983, and when you're saved, grace, growing in grace, it says, teaching us what? First of all, grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. All right, let's just walk down through it. The second thing it does, it teaches us to deny what? 
worldly lust. You see how simple that is? I, I simple to pull out of the passage, not do sometimes, right? Third thing, it teaches us to what? Live soberly. He said it means uh, you can't get drunk. Well, that's a given, amen. You're supposed to be filled with the Spirit, not, uh, uh, you're not supposed to be filled with that other stuff. Uh, teach us to live soberly, where? In this present world, right? And then four, grace teaches you to what? Live righteously. You see that? Right in the passage. And then fifthly, live godly. Boy, grace is quite a teacher, isn't it? And uh, that's all in this present world. Not someone you're yang. It's here in this present world. And then last but not least, grace teaches you to what? Grace even teaches you where to look. Looking for that blessed hope. You can break this up into keep it at 6 and combine it with the other one, I'll put it into 7. I say this, you know who the blessed hope is? That's Jesus Christ, looking for that blessed hope, right? That's Jesus Christ. Grace teaches you to keep your eyes on Jesus. You see that? When life is good, keep your eyes on Jesus. When life is not good, keep your eyes on Jesus. Grace will teach you that. And it says looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing. You know what that is? There's your rapture. Looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See that? That's your rapture. That's when you and I get out of here. And that's grace. That's the great teacher of grace. You ever had to struggle in your Christian life to grow? You know why? You just need to ask the Lord for more grace. It's not that you're just some uh, just wicked old sinner and I, I just can't live it and I don't know why some people can live it and I can't. You just need to ask the Lord for more grace. Lord, I need grace. Didn't the Lord tell Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee? That's what he said. You need grace. You need an extra helping of grace. When you go to the Lord this week, say, Lord, I'm facing quite a week. I got a lot of stuff in front of me. I don't know how I'm going to do it. But whatever that dumb preacher said, I need some grace to get uh, to, to deny ungodliness. Because if you don't have grace, you know what will start happening? You'll start taking pleasure in ungodliness. And you'll start saying, you know, this world really ain't so bad at all. You'll start involving yourself more with the world. And next thing you know, you'll get careless with how you live. And you won't live seriously. You won't live soberly anymore. And next thing you know, uh, you won't feel the need. You won't feel the necessity to live righteous. And uh, next thing you know, you know church really is not really that important. You know, it's okay. I, I stay home and weed my garden and, and cut wood and, and do all that. They won't miss me. And next thing you know, you're living ungodly. And next thing you know, this whole thing about Jesus, keeping your eyes on Jesus, I'm looking at the political scene, and, and I'm looking at the uh, local elections, who, who knows and who cares, right? And, uh, you know, you know if, you, if you run it great, and it's, it's not because you're that important, it's because they need someone to change the light bulbs and, you know, pull the weeds, of course. And, and the next thing you know, you stop looking at Jesus Christ, and you stop looking for the rapture. Why? You just need grace. Grace is a great teacher. And what Paul is saying, he's saying the more you grow in grace, the more holy you should become and you're living. And I'd challenge you, we're done here this evening. As you go into this week, ask the Lord for more grace. And the more grace you get, it should, it should, strive, it should make you live holier. Amen? And keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and hopefully he comes back tonight. All right, let's stop right there. Verse 1.
pick up verse 2 on Wednesday. What you and I need this week is more grace. Pray the Lord gives me more grace so I become a better preacher. Pray the Lord gives you grace to be a better husband and better wife and better father and all the rest of that stuff. All right, why don't you stand? We'll get out of here.